Hi, friends. Welcome to Have You Met Her, the podcast about amazing women. I'm Paige, and I'm excited to continue this five-part series celebrating women who use their powerful voices to inspire change, speak for those who couldn't speak for themselves, share their passions, and loudly speak their truths. Grab a cup of coffee, slap on your I Voted sticker, and enjoy episode two. Have you met Inez Milholland? Inez Milholland was born on August 6, 1886, in Brooklyn, New York. Her father, John, was a New York Tribune reporter, and her mother, Jean, was a homemaker and a mother to Inez, who the family called Nan, a younger daughter named Vita, and a son named Jack. Inez's father was drawn to underdogs and was always involved in one social justice fight or another. This urge to fight for the underdog made a strong impression on Inez, and she carried this influence for her whole life. Inez's mother, Jean, also had very strong and unique for the times views on how to raise the most well-rounded children. She believed that her daughters should be encouraged to have careers. She also believed that fresh air, sunshine, and exercise were just as important for her daughter's development as they were for her son's. And when she saw all three of her kids playing at the beach or in the fields and forest, she didn't care about the negative looks and comments that she got. She continued to quietly encourage her children's independence. After an unsuccessful political office run, Inez's dad joined a pneumatic mail tubes business. You know, like those tubes you send through the clear pipes at the bank. This was quite the newfangled technology in 1897, and the upswing in wealth opened many doors for the family. The Millhollands moved to London in 1899, but they kept their property in New York for the summers. John and Jean wanted their children to be exposed to European culture and all the great art, literature, and history that was there. Inez, who was 13 at the time of the move, was thrilled with this new adventure. The Millhollands' London home was called a hotbed of humanitarianism. Remember, John always rooted for the underdog, and he'd always been attracted to the unpopular causes, and their house became a meeting place for the leaders of these organizations to come and have a captive audience for their views and visions. Inez would listen and learn, and she grew a great global understanding of a lot of current issues in this way. Inez was enrolled in school in London. She attended Kensington High School for Girls, where she was encouraged to be educated not as a graceful plaything, but as a possessor of a power which society must, at its peril, teach her to use for the better. Although this London school was much more academically challenging for Inez, she enjoyed school. Literature was her favorite subject, and when she was scolded for reading too much and falling behind on her other subjects, she blamed the books, calling them way too interesting to put down. During high school, Inez played tennis and competed in track and field competitions. Service to the poor was also part of her schooling. She would volunteer at a soup kitchen with her classmates and would later call these experiences defining moments. 
She said that this experience stirred her feminist inklings by forging in her mind the first connection between financial independence and equal rights for women. It was during this time that Inez first started considering studying law. Service to others was also very important to Inez's mother. Together, they started a branch of the International Sunshine Society, where members were encouraged to do good deeds for others. Inez's life was full of interesting experiences, trips to museums and concerts, but her parents also made sure that their family had fun, too. They played chess and checkers. They also played charades and ping pong. They danced and they laughed. As Inez got older, she noticed three things. First, her father had so many opinions, and sometimes she got really frustrated with him. She said that he had a bad habit of thinking that the world couldn't go around without his advice. The second thing that she noticed was that her mother was a bit stubborn. More than once, Inez witnessed her mother stand up to her father, which gave her an example of challenging male authority. And lastly, Inez realized that she was beautiful. She was tall, athletic, and had a beautiful face. Add to her natural beauty the fact that she appreciated dressing fashionably and carried herself very confidently, and she caught a lot of attention from male admirers. When she was 17, she received her first marriage proposal. When that relationship fizzled before any real talk of a wedding, Inez simply said, my heart isn't broken. Inez had plans, and her sights were set on attending college in the United States, specifically Vassar College. Unfortunately, Inez learned that her Kensington certificate would not be accepted for admission to Vassar, and she had to attend the Willard School for Girls in Berlin, Germany for a time to prove her scholarly abilities to Vassar's admission office. She said that she'd never worked so hard. Although she was a good student, she was also a little bit of a class clown. She earned the nickname Little Devil for her practical jokes and her quick, smart-mouthed responses to teachers. After a semester at Willard, she was awarded the certificate that she needed in order to be accepted at Vassar. Vassar itself has an interesting history. In a nutshell, it was founded in 1861 by Matthew Vassar, who people called a revolutionary. There were no colleges for women at the time. Most people believed that education made women infertile. Seriously, people thought that. Mr. Vassar believed that women, having received from her creator the same intellectual constitution as men, have the same rights as men to intellectual culture and development. This radical start created what some would call a breeding ground for rebels, which was a perfect fit for our rebellious friend, Inez. Inez started Vassar after three days of intense testing in 1905. She was a complicated girl. She was self-indulgent, but did acts of service for others. She had respect for education, but was an independent thinker. She was idealistic, confident, full of questions, and she was sophisticated. She was determined to get as much as possible out of her college experience. Inez threw herself into the college experience at Vassar. 
While taking a full schedule of classes, she also participated in golf, tennis, and field hockey. She joined the drama club and was so impressive that she was cast as Romeo in Romeo and Juliet when she was a freshman. She joined a list of clubs, current topics, German, and debate, and she was also appointed with some of her classmates by the city of Poughkeepsie to act as a probation officer for the children's court. Inez was still anticipating going to law school, and this gave her an inside look at some of the goings-on. Early in her college years, Inez had yet to take a stand about the women's right to vote movement. When she was assigned to debate taking the pro-suffrage view, she reached out to her dad for help. He challenged the anti-suffrage messaging that Inez was parroting, all the reasons why women shouldn't vote, that were talked about socially around school, and he planted seeds of interest. Those seeds sprouted and bloomed when Inez spent the summer between her sophomore and junior years in London. She met suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst and was inspired to participate in a number of women's social and political union demonstrations. She loved the camaraderie and the fact that women from all social backgrounds were working together to be heard. When Inez began her junior year at Vassar, she wrote an article for the school's paper and said that she was a little embarrassed that she hadn't seen American women working as hard to earn the right to vote. Vassar's president at the time considered any discussion of women's suffrage as propaganda and believed that Vassar's mission was not to reform society, but to educate women. I don't think he knew who he was up against. Inez was extremely popular with her fellow students. She was elected president of her class, was the captain of the field hockey team, had set a school shot putt record, and would, in her senior year, win the College Cup as the best all-around athlete. She was also popular for other reasons. Her over-the-top presence, she loved to wear multiple strands of pearls and strong perfumes, she smoked cigarettes unapologetically, and she was known for bending rules and challenging the status quo. And then there was her contagious political activism. She spoke so passionately to anyone who would listen that it was easy to agree with her viewpoint. She pushed school administration to allow suffrage clubs and debates, and then found loopholes, like holding meetings off campus in a cemetery, when she was denied. The waves she were making were having quite the effect on her, but also on those around her. Inez joined the Equality League of Self-Supporting Women, who viewed that earning a living held the key for female independence. Inez was the president of the Campus Intercollegiate Socialist Society and found the socialist platform of public ownership of utilities and equalizing wealth appeared promising to create a more humane society. Many women at the time, in her social circles especially, could identify with the oppressed because of their own life's limitations. During the summer of 1908, Inez was again in London and participated in the Women's Sunday Suffrage Rally, where 30,000 women attended. The feeling of that many women working together towards a common goal was life-changing for Inez. She couldn't wait to get back to New York and recreate similar events. While Inez gave the impression to those who met her of a light, fun, vivacious young woman with a fearless drive who was successful at everything she tried, it's important to learn that she struggled with depression through most of her life. 
Most people never saw that side of her, but she always set impossibly high goals and standards for herself and would become devastated when she just couldn't meet them. I think that it's also important to look at the fact that she was raised financially secure and loved to be surrounded by comforts and nice things. She always had her parents' support and money to back her up, and I think that she struggled to find a balance between living the extravagant life of travel and privilege and sacrificing everything for her causes. It was a contradiction that would be hard to come to terms with and would continue to follow her as she championed for more rights for people who literally had nothing. Inez graduated from Vassar in 1909 and began increasing her time and efforts with the suffrage movement, the parades, rallies, and demonstrations. She spoke officially for the first time through a megaphone out of a second-story window overlooking a campaign parade for President Taft, and the parade came to a stop, especially the men, to listen to her. She was beautiful with an impressive, confident voice. Immediately, she was recognized as an important orator for the suffrage movement. Inez was able to project that a woman could be political and still be appealing. When she spoke, it was highly likely that photographs would be taken and show up in the newspaper. All press is good press, right? During the winter of 1909 to 1910, Inez experienced firsthand the most important women's strike in American history, the uprising of 20,000 shirtwaist makers. Inez had heard rumblings of the New York Women's Trade Union League when a representative had visited Vassar and asked students to only purchase women's union-labeled clothing. Inez joined the league with many of the wealthy socialites who supported the working-class women. Inez was once again struck by the power of women banding together from all classes, religions, and ethnic groups to fight for workplace rights. Women who recognized that their gender united them in a strong bond that made class unimportant. Women workers were ignored by male-run unions, and because of the desperate need for most of these women to earn a living, they were scared to push for their rights and join the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. In 1909, when factory owners heard that their women workers were discussing unions, they locked the workers out. The strike turned nasty. Police issued fines and arrested picketers on a calm day. They aggressively verbally assaulted and physically beat the picketers on a bad day. Inez and her social groups joined the fight, raising money for bail, feeding the strikers, and supporting in what they considered were safer ways. Inez volunteered for the most dangerous job, watching the picket lines to make sure that the police didn't violate the picketers' right to protest. It was a rough side of reform that Inez had never witnessed before. Inez was arrested twice for her involvement, and those arrests were widely reported on. Hundreds of workers had been arrested, and the fact that only the wealthy socialites' arrests were covered definitely caused some frustration for the workers. Inez was once again walking the line between wanting to be included, but not wanting to give up her privilege of being able to go home to a comfortable house at the end of the day. When the strike ended in February of 1910, it was bittersweet. 
The Triangle Shirtwaist Company, one of the holdout firms that refused to settle or address demands from their workers and was really the nucleus for the strike, had a fire on the eighth floor a year later. 146 women workers were burned or leapt to their deaths. On their list of demands was a request for fire escapes and to stop locking the exterior doors. Inez was still focused on law school. She said that she felt the need to discharge her own individual debt to society by improving the conditions of life for women and children. She applied to Yale, Harvard, Columbia, Oxford, and Cambridge. All had rejected her because she was a woman, even though she wrote eloquent letters talking about why she deserved admission and how much the schools had to gain by granting her a chance. In March of 1910, she had surgery to have her appendix removed and had a long recovery. Even though she was very athletic by nature, she had a very slow recovery that required another hospital stay a few months later. Once recovered, she began school at the School of Law at New York University. This school had a reputation for attracting a remarkable number of spirited, adventurous women eager to topple any obstacle that stood between them and full equality. Inez fit right in and began her studies. She received the only A in law school in common law pleading, a reflection of her passion for arguing for the underdog and her dramatic experience. She may have performed better in other classes, but she never slowed down with her suffrage movement involvement. I think that real-life experiences were much more interesting to her than studying torts and contract law. She joined two of the most active groups, the Women's Political Union and the Political Equality Association. These groups were especially active against anti-suffrage political candidates, covering vehicles with signs, distributing flyers, and covering the sidewalks with chalk to proclaim their messages. Inez managed to pass her first two years of law school, and she decided to clerk for a law firm instead of taking a third year. This was an option if she wanted to take the New York bar exam. She was one of 10 women in her class who received her diploma in January of 1912 with her Bachelor of Laws degree. Inez accepted a clerk position at a well-known law firm working for James Osborne, who had been a district attorney and had 25 years of criminal law experience. Clerking for Osborne was eye-opening. Inez spent hours observing interviews and trials and researching applicable law. There's a story that says at one time, Inez had herself handcuffed to an inmate just to see how it felt. It felt wrong, and she was vocal about her belief that not every guilty person should be punished. She wanted treatment and services available. She added prison reform to her growing list of passionate causes. Even with her clerking obligations, Inez always showed up for her suffragists. On May 7, 1911, she joined her first American suffrage parade. 3,000 women marched down 43 blocks of Fifth Avenue. During this parade, Inez and another demonstrator held up a yellow banner that said, Forward, out of error, leave behind the night, forward through the darkness, forward into light. This parade, which was widely reported on by the press, brought a huge amount of coverage to the cause. The message that a woman's presence in the public sphere was not passive was definitely received. Inez went on to lead that same parade in 1912 and 1913, as well as many others. 
It was said that no suffrage parade was complete without Inez Milholland. She was also popular for starring in suffrage pageants and plays. For all her theatrical over-the-top performances, she was just as effective speaking from a podium. She seemed to have mastered the skill of softening her arguments enough to make them seem reasonable to those who listened. She used logic. She made statements such as women voters would be the house cleaners of the nation. Women's votes could sweep away any social ills such as sweatshops, tenements, prostitution, hunger, poverty, and child mortality. She said a woman's maternal instincts made them better citizens. And she said that if you want a nation of strong, vigorous, happy, and well-educated citizens, you must see to it that all the mothers of those citizens are well-born, well-bred, well-educated, and well-developed. She told the legislature in 1910 that we want the mother's point of view. We want her humanity and her zeal for the conservation and the upbuilding of life incorporated in our laws and our administration. McClure's magazine called Inez the suffrage movement's most effective spokesman. In the beginning of 1913, Inez was busy helping Osborne prepare for a murder trial. She was also busy studying for the New York State Bar Exam, which she passed in February. Like always, though, she dropped everything to rush to the Washington, D.C. Women's Suffrage March that she helped to organize. They marched up Pennsylvania Avenue the day before Woodrow Wilson was inaugurated. Inez led the march wearing a white cape and a crown on a white horse named Gray Dawn. As was often the case, Inez wished that the flattering articles written about her and the cheers from onlookers were responding to her brain, her thoughts, her feelings, and not just her appearance. Rowdy crowds and fearful peace officers caused scenes along the procession, so the parade did not go off without a hitch. But the image of Inez riding on Grey Dawn became a powerful symbol. A month after that parade, Inez was sworn into the New York bar. She was one of only three women among the 107 new attorneys sworn in. Before she threw herself into her new career, Inez led one more march in New York. Her first official work assignment was to work with Osborne to investigate charges of inhumane conditions at Sing Sing State Prison. She interviewed guards and inmates, sometimes meeting alone with the inmates, the first woman who was ever allowed to do so. As she talked to the men, she uncovered terrible conditions and so much violence. She was a major contributor to the document that led to a grand jury voting to indict Sing Sing's warden and other officials. This indictment led to a complete overhaul of the administration and the view that rehabilitation, not punishment, should be the goal of prisons. Inez was insistent that crime is merely misdirected energy. Because Inez was, well, Inez, she decided that after almost a year of working on the Sing Sing project, she needed a vacation. She was on a cruise ship to London when she met a Dutchman named Eugen Bosevin. Inez had had many love affairs, and she fell in and out of passion often, but it seems like she'd met her twin flame in Eugen. 
she proposed marriage to him, apparently three times while they were sailing. When they arrived in London, they married as quickly as they could. Her father in New York read the announcement in the paper that Inez had gotten married. His response was, That's just Inez's way of doing things. I always had faith in Inez's judgment. She acted on impulse from her youth up, but I did not fail to notice that she was right just about all the time. Their marriage, though unconventional, seemed to work well for them. Inez and Eugen were both free spirits, and they vowed to each other that they would never limit each other's freedom. Eugen could get jealous. Inez, after all, was a huge flirt, and she definitely had a mind of her own. But her independence was one of the things that Eugen loved most about her. When Inez returned to America, ready to resume her law work, she was shocked when as soon as she walked off the ship, she was told by an immigration inspector that she was no longer an American citizen. They said that because she had married a Dutch citizen, she'd given up her citizenship. There was a federal law from 1907 that formalized the legal assumption that a woman assumed her husband's nationality. Inez reached out to senators to support a bill to change the law, but the bill failed. Even though technically she no longer had a law license, the New York State Bar required U.S. citizenship, Inez continued to practice law. She told her friends, I shall continue my law practice and will never, never give up my suffragette activities. She began to spend more time and energy with the Congressional Union. Its leader, Alice Paul, will get her own episode in the future. The CU's most important focus at the time was to campaign for a federal amendment. Because of Inez's law background, she was a perfect representative to argue constitutional law with those standing in the way. Inez's law office became busier, having built a reputation for advocating for women. Not only did women seek her out, but colleagues would send women to Inez. They knew that she would answer questions, give advice, and help, usually without charging them. The only women's issue that Inez didn't take on was birth control. She understood the need for birth control to be available, but she never took a public role in the fight. This could have been because Inez and her husband were desperate for a child. They had started planning a family the moment they got married, and they were devastated when Inez failed to get pregnant. Inez did join the fight for free speech, especially active since the rising popularity of motion pictures. She also joined the humanitarian cult, who opposed capital punishment and protested executions. She wrote about this cause, State murder is not human. It is not Christian. It is not scientific, and it does not protect society. She was convinced that humans were innately good and that poverty and poor education were to blame for crime. And she joined the Women's Peace Party as a pacifist, believing that war was another argument for why women clearly needed to vote. Because Inez always went to 100 with her causes, she resigned her position in the law firm and decided to travel to Italy to report as a war correspondent. She hoped to try and help end the war. The high standards that she set for herself made her feel like a failure, and she hoped that this change in career would help her feel more like a success. 
Traveling alone during war into dangerous areas probably appealed to Inez's sense of adventure, but she came up against many roadblocks in her access to press credentials from the Ministry of the Interior. Inez wrote a few essays about what she saw, but she wasn't taken seriously as a reporter, and after being evicted from the country by the Prime Minister for displeasing the government with her anti-war articles, Inez returned home a failure again. Inez wasn't the only passionate pacifist in the news. Do you know the name Henry Ford? You know, the car guy? Well, he had agreed to finance a peace campaign to help end the war. Many prominent pacifists were invited to join. Some of those were Jane Addams, Helen Keller, Thomas Edison, but they all declined. Inez needed to feel like she was making a difference, so she agreed to join the voyage. She said, This expedition may fail, but the world has been the better for gallant failures. The delegate's goal was to come up with a mediation plan to be presented at the Conference for Continuous Mediation of Neutral Countries in Stockholm in February of 1916. There were issues with the trip almost immediately. There were fights for control, and the group splintered. Many people caught pneumonia, and there was an outbreak of the flu. Inez kept on pushing until the delegates finally reached Stockholm, only to find that Henry Ford had let the group. He'd appointed a council of seven to lead the mission, which didn't include Inez. Frustrated beyond measure, Inez went home. Inez stepped back into her suffrage work, being invited to speak at the Suffrage First Luncheon for the Convention of the Women's Party of Western Voters that was held in Chicago in June of 1916. She gave an impassioned speech saying, Suffrage for women is a gift of no one to confer. It is a right. I believe, and every woman of spirit and independence believes, that women are human beings with a definite part to play in the shaping of human events, and that any attempt at reconstruction of the world after this war is ended is inadequate and abortive without their help. We must make the rulers of the actions feel that to attempt a reconstruction without the cooperation of women is not to be tolerated. We must say, women first. Inez was such an inspiration that she was invited to be the Congressional Union's special envoy in the West. Their goal was to rally opposition for Woodrow Wilson and other Democrats in the fall. Inez was exhausted, and she was finding it harder and harder to keep up her lightning speed of travel, speaking, and protesting. Inez was so flattered, but at first, she declined the offer. Her father, John, believed that her success on this trip would reflect well on him, so he suggested that Inez bring Vita with her, her younger sister. Inez felt better about going with someone who could help look out for her, so she agreed. The travel was difficult and the itinerary was intense. 
Inez would give 50 speeches in eight states in 28 days, traveling by train and by car. Almost immediately, Inez felt so sick that she went to a doctor. Her head, neck, and shoulders ached, she felt dizzy, and she was covered in black and blue bruises. She had heart palpitations and a strange pain at the back of her neck. The doctor examined her and said that she had tonsillitis and would need her tonsils out, but that she could wait until after her trip to do it. Inez was relieved that she could continue, but she asked for medication to help her get through all of her speeches. The doctor prescribed her arsenic, strychnine, and iron. Inez was plucky and she was passionate and she worked her way through the schedule, although she had to call doctors at some of the stops. The frenetic energy of the importance of this tour carried Inez to California. There, Inez delivered an address in Los Angeles on October 19, 1916 to over a thousand people. She said, President Wilson, how long must this go on? Let me repeat, we are not putting our faith in any man or in any party, but in the women voters of the West. And then Inez collapsed. Vita convinced Inez to go to the hospital, and it was found that her infected tonsils had affected her heart and that she had several infected teeth. A blood test was done, and the test revealed that Inez's red blood cell count was lethally low, and she was diagnosed with aplastic anemia. Despite fluids, rest, and a blood transfusion from her sister, she had surgeries to remove the infections, but Inez died a couple of months later, on November 25, 1916. Inez was a firecracker who was willing to champion the causes of anyone, women, laborers, children, the poor, inmates. She used the privilege of her educated, white, upper-class voice and her beautiful face to amplify her messages. When Inez saw a wrong, she didn't worry about whether or not she could fix it. She would passionately jump in and do what she could. hope that you've enjoyed learning about Inez Milholland. I know that the next time I see an injustice, I'll think of Inez and consider how I can take a personal stand, whether big or small, to be a part of the solution. And the next time that I vote, I will remember those that sacrificed so much for my right to do so. Please visit our Instagram, Have You Met Her podcast, for the resources used in researching Inez. Rate and review the podcast. Tell your friends. And if you have an idea for a future episode, please email me at haveyoumetherpodcast at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. See you next week.